Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about an artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. Today, we are pleased to have the artist Paige Crossland Anderson. After graduating with a bachelor's in fine art from Brigham Young University, she quickly gained attention with her paintings inspired in part by pioneer quilts. Based in Salt Lake City, she has won multiple awards in major contests, and her works have been shown throughout the United States. Welcome, Paige Anderson. So today we are going to start off by talking about the work you've chosen, and we'll work into uh, that, your own works. Let's uh, tell us which work you've chosen. Well, I chose a pioneer quilt in the pattern of a log cabin style quilt. Um, it was made by a early settler in the Salt Lake Valley. And that's all we know about it, right? Yeah, we don't know a whole lot about many of these quilts. Um, some that I've looked at are at the Daughters of the Utah Pioneer Museum, okay. and they know more about the makers and, and some of the stories behind the quilts, but this particular one I just thought was beautiful, so I thought it would look good on. It's incredible. This is uh, in the book Quilts and Women of the Mormon Migration, and and it's um, it's something that when I looked at it, I, I couldn't help but feel like... Let me see if I can distill this. It it looks like something that people who are migrating don't have time to think about. Sure. <laughs> or work on at this high of a level, right? Sure. Even people now who have all the time in the world, let alone those who are in the process of homesteading. Right. Wouldn't necessarily have the wherewithal to work at this high of a level. Or why? You know, it's like you have so many things to think about. Food, building a log cabin that you can sleep inside of. Why would you take the time to make this really tedious, beautiful quilt, but they did. And and they also, materially, where would they have gotten the materials to do these things? Were these scraps? Yeah, many, many of them were scraps. In fact, I think I read about, if it wasn't this log cabin quilt, it was one that was adjacent to it in the book that said that they thought every single piece of fabric in there was upcycled. The lady who made it, you know, would take the old bands from insides of hats or from clothing hmm. or from, you know, maybe a few special fabrics they brought with them from where they immigrated from. So they hmm. kind of told the story of also their their journey, right? They they would hmm. begin the quilts maybe when they were living on the East Coast or and work on it along the way and then they'd finish it up with with the rags that were left by the time they got to the Salt Lake Valley. So they're so beautiful kind of stories, I think, as well. So nothing wasted. I like the word upcycle that you used. Thank That's you. not a word that I use enough. Is <laughs> yeah. upcycle. But it, it it really is. You could you could pick a piece of this quilt and you could say, okay, that was my dress, which could no longer use anymore. Sure. This is the inside band of grandfather's hat. Yeah. Or the outside band. Which is right? cool, right? I mean, then you would, yeah. you would get that quilt and it would have all of these reminders to you of of where you've been or people who you love or you know things like that. Do you think that it was considered by them? Um, to be a work of art, and let, let me let me first state something that I think when you say that you saw the, the, this can be seen and discussed at the Pioneer Museum, sure, right? That's a very different venue than where people normally see quilts. There is the annual quilt show sure. that happens at the Springville Museum of Art, yeah. which is highly attended. But at the same time, that group of people 
isn't necessarily the same audience who come for the art shows. No, not at all. I mean, you see quilts in folk art museums. Like, there's always right. that that delineation of it's a, it's a folk art. It's not a fine art. Do you think that's fair? It's a big question. I don't know. I was I was thinking a lot about this in preparation, and I was like, I don't have a I don't have a clear like one way or another answer. I think that some of the quilts they made, they probably stepped back and thought this is like a masterpiece. Right. But others were probably a little more utilitarian. So I don't I don't know if I don't know how to answer that. I okay. I was doing some of my own reading, and also as as I was when I was in graduate school, and we were talking with people who had chosen pieces of art that were found works of art that they had then turned into a work of art. The distinction mm -hmm. oh, there was always that what made it a found work of art, let's say I turned a tractor into something okay. or a tool into a work of art, is I turned from something useful into something that was not useful anymore. And that was <laughs> therefore what made it Art a work is not of useful. Art. art was not like, <laughs> it see. didn't have a practical, utilitarian, uh, prosaic use sure. of some kind, right? And so the question then is, um, can you, if they had not used it, but they often use these, right? Well, sure, or, but I would also argue, I would argue too, that not only was it, there was a practical end, right? But I think in the making, yeah. there was a, there was an emotional or a spiritual necessity that they, you know, a meditative quality of making these things hmm. that not, is not necessarily utilitarian. You know, you don't really, you can't throw your meditation on the bed, even though, the outcome was a quilt that, would, that could be useful. And there were tons yeah. and tons of uses. So, you know, if that's the definition, and maybe that kind of skirts around the actual object and uses the process as something that isn't useful. Yeah. It had to be useful on some level. Maybe some of them weren't used, but they also would have been the most beautiful thing. Sure. It, you, you and I have probably been to some of these early settlement cabins where you had 10 or 12 people in a log cabin mm -hmm. and or even a mud hut mm -hmm. and this would have been by far the most colorful item maybe even most luxurious item in the space oh absolutely and it would have been it would have been the most visible potentially because yeah. the bed would have would have been covered it would have been the blankest space that you could fill well here's what i love too is that they were used I love that they had something so beautiful that they were okay with using. You know that it was this it was this treasure. It took hours and hours and hours. They yeah. may have, you know, brought these fabrics from many different places. It took a long time to gather enough fabric to make a quilt, but they would use it as the door before they had the door built or for part of the roof or to wrap dead bodies in as they crossed the plains or mm. you know, they were they served a myriad of purposes that that I think shows something I don't know. I like that kind of detachment from it too. That mm. it's like a treasure that they're like, "You know what? We can use this." as yeah. something that will will aid us. So, Did you come from a family of quilters? My grandma quilts. So not a whole family of them. I don't think any of my aunts are... And my grandma's the only child. So on that side, I'm, I come from a quilter. She's been in the quilt show at Springville a few times. She's huh. won an award there. That's, that's pretty serious because the competition is tough for yeah. those, right? Yeah, I think so. What... Do you have memories of her quilting? Absolutely. She's still alive. Um, I would go down and she would, you know, try and have me help her and I was not helpful. But I enjoyed, she had a giant table with her. <laughs> you weren't helpful. I just, I, this is why I paint them, you know. Like threading a bobbin still kind of gives me hives. You know, it's just not, it's not what I, what I love to do. But I love, 
I love the idea of them. I love what they represent. I love, you know, the stories they carry with them. So that's why I use them. But she has a, a giant table and a bedroom downstairs that has a big green cutting rotary cutter mat, you know, and a couple sewing machines and quilts all over the walls. My grandpa is an art collector and he has a few of her pieces framed in her house. And so I think seeing that helped me think, okay, like these can be a, a fine art. You know, there's, they don't have to always be a folk art. So you had been you, you on on some level, like even the way your grandfather treated them may maybe affected the way that you oh absolutely about them as absolutely art. yeah. If what are the skills that it takes to be a good quilter? Observe just observing your grandmother. She's got to have a lot of patience, I think. Okay. Um, there's also you know I've seen her rip out tons and tons of seams to not be afraid to go back and correct mistakes. Um, you've got to be able to measure, <laughs> do some math. I don't know. I mean, I, I never sat and made one from start to finish, but I certainly saw that it was a labor of love in many, many different ways. I mean, her watching her little, you had to have fine dexterity and watching her hands work. You know, there's things like those are kind of treasured memories to me is watching her hands. When I look at these, at this quilt in particular you chose, and I don't know if it bears any similarity to the works that your grandmother has done, mm-hmm. but there is a master plan clearly going on here that is being laid out on a grand scale. Yeah. Right? So it's not just the individual squares. It's how the squares interact with one another. And and it that takes it takes a lot of planning. A lot of planning. Yeah. It's, it not, it's not just the math of making sure everything fits right. It's the planning of how visually it's going to look the, exactly. on a micro level when you're looking at it up close and as you back away from it. Yeah. I was at my parents' house. My mom has one of my grandma's quilts. It's called a watercolor quilt. And so it kind of, I mean, it looks, there's like a picket fence and a sun ray and these vines going up the fence. And so all of these little squares are pieced together in a way where it looks like there's vines crawling up a, a picket fence. And hmm. and I, I was sitting there nursing my baby and just looking at this and thinking, you know, grandma's kind of an artist, you know, she's, hmm. she really, she picked certain little sections of this fabric or this pattern to highlight, you know, a certain flower that could be the center of this thing or that, you know, I just, I, I really appreciated it on a new level when I sat and studied it. And I wonder if hmm. we don't do that often enough with, with quilts, because you say like, they're these utilitarian objects that are, right. that are around us all the time. We don't think about them in a way that we do as artists or as paintings. So, in your own work, which you said is inspired in part by by uh, by quilts, mm-hmm. when you look at them, what does your art share with the quilt making of the pioneer artists of your grandmother? What what if there was a Venn diagram where there was <laughs> where, some kind the of overlap? Overlap. Where what would it be? Um, you know, I really think I mentioned before kind of this meditative or this spiritual emotional necessity of some sort of outlet for women. Um, it serves that for me, hmm. the the process of making it. I have to think that, you know, we know that quilting was kind of like a social thing for pioneers. They got together and had these quilting bees. But I have to mm-hmm. assume that there was a lot of mental stuff to work through as well as you, you know, the loss of, of a spouse or how am I hmm. going to do, you know, all of these, all of these stresses that I think if you don't have some sort of outlet or something to do with your hands that maybe is quiet and meditative, um, I think that'd be tough, you know, to not have something. So I've read, I've read a little bit about how that was part of why they loved it so much or what was something they got out of making them. I imagine it was both. I imagine it was both. What I mean by both is I imagine it was both something that they worked on on their own as part of the Mm -hmm. quilt making. And so it served that purpose for them 
on an individual meditative level, but there was also the social aspect. Yeah. There were moments when they did it together. Right. You'd all bring your blocks together and when you, and, and, and so they probably looked at their quilts and they remembered conversations. They remembered what they were going through personally. Which is exactly what made. my paintings are for me. I remember that? I remember the books I was listening to or I remember, you know, the struggles I was having. And so a lot of the titles actually just come from the mental stuff I was thinking about or working through as I was making that particular work. Um, so this this goes to a question that I had for you, which was uh, I many abstract artists in the short history that we have of modern art have not all of them, but many of them you simply have titles like Opus One, Untitled sure. Work Fifty Seven, yeah, and um, this is is paired with the idea that their work is often a deliberately non-narrative work, right? Mm -hmm. It's something that isn't meant for them to impose on anybody. And that's a word that is a really strong word, impose, right? right? And a, a, a particular way of, of looking at it. But I think that some people often want to weigh in, right, to, to something. And when you hear the words Opus 55, it, 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 it makes it harder to find a way into yeah. a piece for some. So mm -hmm. those things, I personally have often found at odds, but I understand the reasoning behind what they're doing. And your work, you've chosen to put titles. Yeah. So give us an example of the work that's in Springville, for example, which we'll put up on the on the uh, on, the, on the site for for the podcast. Yeah. What is its title? Its title is Stacking Miracles. OK. So um, and this is just kind of a theme I think about often with my work is these small things that we do. You know, it ties back to quilting too. these little stitches or these these tiny things that we do every day that don't seem very meaningful mm. that stack up and create miracles. You know, we hmm. it's the miracles are in the little doings, you know, so my work is full of little tiny pieces. And that's so does that show up from. in the way you craft them too? walk me through the process of making making your work? How, what goes into a particular work? Okay, so I've started doing something a little bit different with them where I start with like an, an abstract, a really loose abstract underpainting that will kind of, sometimes it kind of guides a composition, other times it just is an underlaying, mm, it kind of serves to make marks and, and things to sand through as I keep working with it. It's kind of a unifying ground at the, uh, sure. at the bottom. Okay. So after that's there, then I get out my ruler and my compass and I, and I you know, draw on the pattern. I measure it out and sketch out the pattern. And then I begin painting each little piece. So I'll often use masking tape if it's something that has, you know, right edges or, or straight lines. And I'll mask off every shape and I'll paint that same shape two, three, four times in different colors, hmm. each shape. And then I'll use a power sander and sand through it. And so you get some of these colors and marks through, through the different shapes. And then I go and I hmm. paint it again and I sand it again and paint it and sand it until it kind of becomes what I want it to look like. Interesting. So when you... Do you ever find yourself sanding off too much deliberately and then starting over? I mean, is this is it something that builds and builds and builds yeah. in a progressive way or sometimes does it take two steps back and one step forward? No, no, there's definitely some of that. Sometimes you sand it and you're like, this is awesome. Like there's there's things that just work, there's colors that jive and you know, the relationships look really good. And other times yeah. it's like, this is so ugly. And I've had paintings <laughs> where I get to a point and I'm like, I'm just gonna cover this over with paint again and try, you know, and so I you know, I was working on one a few months ago and just didn't like where it was going. I sanded it and I was kind of excited and I was just like, no, this, this not, it's not working. So I covered the whole thing over on green paint and sanded through it and then worked it from there. And, but I think that kind of plays into what I was saying with my grandma's seam ripping. Like you've got to be able to just 
rip out a couple seams or take some steps back or not be afraid of these these mistakes. Hmm. Um, I mean, I see my I see my paintings as very they're not narrative, but they're definitely reflective of a daily life of like the daily living of life. And yeah. so often in life, there's two steps forward, one step back, or there's mistakes that we have to go back and correct or kind of, you know, paint around or whatever. So, so the the title of the podcast is Mormon Visual Culture, and mm-hmm. that's assuming that. You know, your your paintings don't necessarily have to have a religious context in or or, or an LDS context in order for them to be meaningful to people. Uh-huh. But I do want to get I, I do want to ask questions about your audience and what who you see as your audience, because you do submit to shows as, as part of your career that, um, you know, they're going to be seen specifically by LDS audiences. Absolutely. Do you, yeah. how, how does that come to account with the titles you choose with the work that you do and when you imagine your perfect audience what does it look like that's a lot of questions it's a lot of questions yeah. um and we can we can we can pick whichever one of those questions you, you okay. want to answer <laughs> i mean i the interesting thing about my audience is that because you know they reference quilts really really you know what's the word i'm looking for obviously you know there's 70 80 year old women that are like this is so this is so great. It's a cathedral window or it's a, you know, they, they can name the patterns of the quilts. And they, so people they, actually recognize Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I huh. was at a, I was at a show at the Salt Palace last month and there was every kind of person there. And it was interesting to me to see who was coming up and speaking to me because normally I'll submit to a show or I'll send it to a gallery and I don't ever get to see who responds to my paintings and what they say and who it sells to. Like, I don't have a lot of that information. I know who I sell little works to off my Instagram or my, my website or things like right. that. But, you know, these bigger works, they're often just kind of, I send them to the gallery and then they take care of the rest and send me a check and I don't know that's who, a, that's, who sees it. It's a fascinating idea because most most contemporary artists who are working in non-narrative forms, abstract mm-hmm. forms, they, the expectation I would imagine would be, oh, they're going to a much smaller audience that's usually highly informed in art circles. We're talking about mm-hmm. the art cognoscenti, right? right. These, are, these are people who who wear black and tiny glasses, <laughs> mock turtlenecks, sure, <laughs> right? Mock turtlenecks yeah. and and, uh, and and they're really in the know. But to think that there are eighty-year-old quilters who recognize that you were being influenced by quilt yourself, yeah. That is an audience that that that's that's an incredible that's an incredible group of people. To, it's interesting to, to, to me. In. Yeah, it's really interesting. And then there's also you know young young people that like it for totally. I mean, they like the the kind of design you know dynamic and things like that. And not they don't really care necessarily about the the reference hmm. to quilt patterns, but they like the colors or the the patterns or things like that that are. So it's I think it's kind of a broader a broader swath of people maybe than I initially thought. Hmm. And I, I don't know. I, I've been influenced also by my other set of grandparents. My grandpa was a, was a theater director and he was also, you know, very, he wanted me to always bring my work to his house so he could critique it. And he would Hmm. tell me everything was amazing, but he was an early like patron of my work. I mean, he wanted to buy everything I made. And so seeing someone that was, you know, elderly and, not versed in quilt patterns also think you know this is beautiful or see the the work that goes into it like i think when people see it up close they they immediately think how does she make this because yeah. i was asked like how do you make this it's so it's interesting hmm. to see up close and um I, I feel like i'm talking at my work a lot but but that's the response i get from people yeah. and 
and I think they see that it takes a lot of time and they appreciate like the yeah. time and the, you know, I think when they look at representational work, they think this took a lot of time because it's so to get that, you know, figure just right. You had to spend a lot of time, but to see something that's yeah. not representational that also looks like it took a lot of, you know, grunt work. I think people yeah. just appreciate that. On this is level. something that I personally experienced because I came from my background is the, the classical tradition. It's figurative work. It's mm -hmm. academic painting. And that's where I spent the bulk of my career um, working. And I remember the first time I ever saw Black Square by Kazimir, Kazimir Malevich. And it was a suprematist Russian work that was done at the height of the Bolshevik Revolution. And it was simply a black square within a white frame that he had painted. And I was immediately dismissive, thinking of this as something that was <clears throat> didn't require a lot of work. And, and uh, he could have just quickly you know, painted it with a few strokes. But I was contradicted when I, it wasn't just a work that had something interesting to say because of what he, his theories were behind it, but it was very painterly in person. It was very painterly. Hmm. And it does make me wonder about these expectations we have as, um, as, as part of this Mormon visual culture that we're in. Yeah. I think that it cuts both ways. If you were a figurative artist, um, no matter how much work you put into it, if you have a painting of Jesus who's at the center, they want to know if he's smiling, <laughs> if he's got right. children, and they don't necessarily think of the formal elements of the choices you're making about composition, about drawing the eye around the scene, about how well you nailed that landscape, right? right. And if you're doing an abstract work, people don't necessarily think about all the heart the, the 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 technique the work the the um, choices about composition and color lights darks similar choices that are being made both by figurative and absolutely and and uh, abstract artists mm -hmm. and and i i wonder how you most a, a lot of people like rothko struggled i think agnes martin did in the beginning in trying to show people how much work went into the choices that they were making. Mm -hmm. But when I look at your works, I can see the work you're doing. And I don't know if that is something that you worked up to or that it's something that just kind of naturally came out of you. They look like well, they a, lot a lot of labor has gone into them. And so I think, I think... That's just the natural product of a lot of work going into it. That's how it looks, you know. That's yeah. just, but, you know, you, you mentioned... Um, <clears throat> When you're talking, I was thinking, this is why I, I title my works the way I do, because I think it gives people an access point. You know, there's no Jesus in there, but if you title it, you know, wins and praises never cease. Hmm. People have, you know, in an LDS culture, they have some of these, I don't want to call them buzzwords, but there's, there's words that kind of trigger things They're in our touchstones. minds. They're touchstones. Yeah. So I use a lot of scripture references in my titles. I use a lot of, um, I don't know, phrases that, that speak to me and I guess coming from an LDS context I assume they would speak to others hmm. and I think it gives people an access point to to have an experience while viewing the work hmm. which I want I don't I don't I want them to to be able to look at it and think you know I have a piece unwearied that you were familiar with I think it was in the it was in the show yes last the, fall. the show that we had for the Zion Art mm -hmm. um, Society we had an exhibition last year yes your work was one of the prize winners. Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah. And um, well, it wasn't mine. We the jury did it. The jury. Well, thank you, jury. <laughs> um, but you know, people people see that and and the word unwearied. I mean, I think there's just there's something that they they understand inherently with 
yeah, we do a lot of little things that feel exhausting. Our lives can feel exhausting. Being a disciple can feel exhausting, Mm -hmm. but you know, there's, you can, I can paint something in a way that will, you maybe turn our hearts upward and think, you know, there's something bigger we're a part of, or there's, Mm. at least I hope that's what I can do. I found when I, because I was there for a lot of people coming through the exhibition and people would ask my opinion about things or I would listen to other people's opinions. This is what and I want to do. You're lucky. See? And I, yeah, it's, it's, it is kind of lucky, right? You get to be the fly on the wall. Well, it's also, it also feels like a responsibility because I never want to be in that position to tell people what they should feel or experience in front of a piece. I'd much rather be the person who finds out what people are experiencing. Yeah. Or there's a poem by Billy Collins, <laughs> who used to be the poet laureate, who was talking about how um, the, sometimes when people teach poetry, and they have students, they want to tie the poetry to a chair and beat it with a rubber hose and get a confession out of it. But he said, (laughs) I would rather um, drop a mouse into the maze of the poem and see where the mouse goes, right? And I feel like, I experienced that especially with your your painting. Um, I wanted to not beat meaning out of it, but I wanted to, every time I I, I experienced it, have a different experience. I wanted to, and I think that's one of the marks of great art whether it's figurative, landscape, whatever, yeah. is that you can live with it, and over time it grows in your thinking and in your mind, and mm-hmm. experiences keep happening. And I and this goes to a question of, maybe you don't see this, maybe it's because you're not there when people are talking about your art, but I'm sure people email you or have conversations with you about it. Are you, what what range of reactions, are you surprised by the range of reactions, I guess is the question, that people have to it? Do people have reactions that you never anticipated? I never anticipated. Well, I think they probably won't tell me the things that (laughs) they won't. They don't want to give me a shocking review. But when I was so I had, you know, this this thing at the Salt Palace I mentioned a few weeks or a month ago. And it was so fun to, you know, give people a teaser. You know, how do you make this? And I would say, this is how I make it. And and what is this pattern? I would say it's a quilt pattern. And then they would kind of draw these connections and Mm -hmm. they would say things. I was like, yes, like you're. And it's not like I want them to feel a certain way, but that they they have like an understanding they draw from it that I think is so beautiful yeah. and it was totally their own, but was in line with what I was kind of hoping that they might get out of it, you know? Yeah. And so th- having those experiences with people is super gratifying. It, it it reminds me of something that I read Agnes Martin once said. She was she said that the goal of her paintings was to conjure abstract emotions. Hmm. And then she qualified that by saying happiness, love, experiences of innocence, freedom, beauty, and perfection, right? It's beautiful. I thought that that's a really interesting idea of you're not working with, um, you're, you're not working with um, uh, a classical tradition in the sense that you're able to conjure a specific reaction. This painting is about freedom. Look at that figure. Sure of uh, uh, holding aloft a, a the flame Flat, yeah. of, of, of freedom, right? Um, that everybody recognizes specifically as freedom. And you know what? I'm going to tell a story here. I can, I can do this. I can take a, a little... <laughs> yes, you can. I'm going <laughs> to sit back. It's, um, it's a story about Rothko. Rothko was commissioned to do what are now called the Seagram um, uh, 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 murals that are in the Tate Britain, but they were originally commissioned for the Four Seasons Hotel in New York when it was about to open. It was going to be mm-hmm. the most luxurious hotel in, in New York City. And Rothko was a dedicated communist. And he told friends privately 
that his purpose of doing these these murals in the restaurant where people were going to be ordering lobster was to make people feel such disgust that they would not want to pick up their forks and eat their food that they had paid <laughs> enormous amounts for. Yeah. And he found six or seven months later, um, after they'd been installed, he went to dinner there and he was abjectly depressed that people were eating as if nothing had necessarily happened. Mm. And I, I, this was told to me in the context of somebody who said that he painted them mostly in red. And had he known the scientific influence of colors on people, he would have known that red stimulates hunger and that blue or green, um, it, 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 that it suppresses the appetite. And, <laughs> and it got me thinking, okay, so if you're an abstract painter and you're looking for abstract emotions on some level, um, I've experienced it in front of works. I, I happen to really like Rothko when I look at them, but I'm not looking for him to stimulate hunger. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It seems like a kind of I admire his fervor as a as a communist on some level, and I kind of it's it's easy to dismiss his misguided I didn't understand this element of scientific effects of color on the brain. Yeah. Um, but I think. There is something to this idea of abstract emotions. You look at something and you start feeling things and you start making connections in your brain. And so when I ask, you're listening to your audience talk about these things, you give it a title, you definitely have a process that you've gone through and you connect it to your emotional experience that yeah. you've had. Is there a shared experience with them of you were feeling sadness on some level as you were doing this and they look at it and magically you find that they are experiencing that. I've had a few experiences with that. Um, I think, I, I always think I'm the luckiest person because I get to have this like outlet where I get to, you know, meditate or, or do these, you know, work through emotions or whatever it is. I feel like I sound like I'm a really big basket case. I've got to go get my, get my crap out <laughs> on the canvas. Um, but you know, I get to do not this any more than the rest of us. Okay, no, good. Not at all. You don't come across that way. At all, no. <laughs> um, so I get to do this and then I, I, there's a byproduct, right? And right. I get to share that. So I don't necessarily sit down and make a painting and think I want to make a sad painting. Right. I just sit down and start painting because it's an outlet because I have three little kids and I'm like, I need two hours of no little kids, hmm. you know? So for me, I, I never really sit down with a work and think this is I mean, not sometimes there's there's exceptions to this, but but generally I just I just want to create something. I want to I want to yeah. like turn my my anxieties about my kids or my frustrations about X, Y and Z into something hmm. productive. And and so that's kind of how this came about or how, why I'm still painting patterns, maybe. Um but when you say still painting patterns, do you think there's something after painting patterns? I don't patterns? know. I've had this thought. You know, I did it in for my BFA show at BYU, and I initially turned to patterns because I wanted to talk about genealogy. I hmm. wanted to talk about this this loss and and gaining a pattern of inheritance, of a sense of duty, of connections that we that we know that we have, may not know exactly how those connections are made because we haven't done the work to find all of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. So this is what this is how it all kind of came about. Where I went to critiques and I painted chairs initially because chairs have seats and backs and arms and legs like people, but they're not people. Hmm. But still in critiques, people would say, so is this chair your great grandfather and this chair is your dad? And uh -huh. you know, I was like, no, 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 it's not about, I wanted no individuals. I wanted it about this bigger idea 
So then I was talking to my grandma in her quilt room and looking through pattern books and thought, I should just paint patterns. Patterns, I mean, that's, and and this was coupled with the experience of going to family search because I wanted to make a sound piece because I also am so inspired by Anne Hamilton. So I wanted to make this sound piece installation. Tell us about Anne Hamilton, who she is first. Um, She's an installation artist. She's Mm -hmm. done incredible. I mean, I don't know how much I'm going to say about her, but she does a lot of things that I have, that I'm inspired by. She couples sound with these, you know, installations that just kind of create this experience. And so I wanted to create this experience, this reverence um, for, for ancestors by, um, I made a beeswax hexagon for each of my known ancestors going back 20 generations. Hmm. And I connected them and I wrote their names on them and the dates, the year that they were born and died if they knew, if we knew it. Mm-hmm. And I hung them kind of in a veil um, in the HVAC in the Harris Fine Arts Center at BYU. And I coupled that with this recording of me saying their names. Hmm. Um, and the, the byproduct kind of felt like something you might hear in the temple, like the way the names are kind of spoken quietly or, you know, these kind of hmm. murmuring, these, I overlaid the, the sound so that they, I don't know if you, when you sit there and do temple work, you can sometimes hear lots of different people whispering names or saying names. So there's kind of the same feeling. So I would go to family search and I had to look up all of these pedigree charts and I watched these little things pop up, these little, you know, you click an arrow and two more names would show up and you click an arrow and two more names right. would show up. And so I thought patterns. So that's, huh. that's kind of how patterns started. And then I had my first baby and then I still think that genealogy is inspiring, but I wasn't wrapped up in that. You know, I wasn't thinking about it. I was thinking about huh. unfolding cloth diaper after cloth diaper after cloth diaper. I am nursing again and again. I am like, there's these rhythms and these routines right. and these daily, daily patterns that I'm wrapped up in. And so I, it still felt relevant to me to make paintings like that. Huh. And maybe there is something I mean, life, all of, I think everyone's life is, is wrapped up in routine. Right. And the quotidian stuff that we, that we get bogged down by. And so, um, so that's what my work where it stems from. It's just this idea that we have these, these routines, these menial things that we do day in and day out that create beautiful tapestries that create life that is rich and full. And so I don't know if I'll ever get sick of doing that. I, I thought yeah. when I finished at BYU, time to move on to the next thing. I've been painting patterns for a year. And mm. it's been six and I'm still doing it and still still really enjoying it. It seems like you're turning these patterns into a positive thing, too. I can't tell you how often. You know, I've, I've got three of my own kids right. and there's there's often this feeling of routine is good and it's building upon things. But there's also this feeling of, oh, we're stuck. I have to. Why does this even matter? I've cleaned the kitchen for the third or fourth time today. Right. I've done this for the third or fourth time. And. Mm-hmm. Nothing stays as it is. And I, I really like this idea of this is religion in general, right? Religion Absolutely. is ritual that done multiple times time over the years eventually mm-hmm. builds up a patina on you. Yes. And changes who you are on some level, right? right? And it's kind of what do you choose as being your routine? Right. Or I, worship in that way, you know, if you want to yeah. get in more into Mormonism, you know, going to church, taking the sacrament, ordinances, temple work, all of these yeah. things are, are re- repeated patterns that we do again and again and yeah. again, hoping that somehow they're efficacious, you know, huh. having faith that somehow they're changing us. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, back to your question about audience, young moms really get my work. Really? Young moms really resonate with, with the feeling of why, like I'm doing these things that feel so 
meaningless hmm. you know so much of it you know you realize at the end of the day like I've got three beautiful kids and they're so alive and healthy and like huge blessings but from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. a lot of it just feels like going through the motions of feeding them again and wiping the table again and hmm. doing buckles in the car again you know all of these things feel I don't know not significant do you find that there's you, you find that uh, there's an audience that resonates with your work and I kind of wonder sometimes um in the church, and this is just the reality of where we live in, art is usually used in the service of illustration, gospel manuals, yep. telling stories. And if you're an abstract artist and your work, as you know, we've talked about, has a clear resonance and implication with gospel principles, um, how does your work get seen? Is is there a clear venue? Does it get published in magazines? Does it get used in 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 exhibitions that are uh, you know quote unquote official in any yeah. way? Or is there is there really not? Do you have to create your own venues and places for it to be seen if it's not clearly a an illustration of a gospel right. narrative? You know, when I was at BYU, I thought there's probably not a place for work like mine in the, you know, I don't know what to call it, but kind of the official umbrella of the church, of church art. You yeah. know, I'm not going to be in the gospel art kit. Not like that's an aspiration of mine, but you know, there's, there's places I'm not going to be on the cover of the Enzyme. Right. Um, but I think that the, I think the church is growing up a little bit in their appreciation for other forms of, of art. Mm. I was really encouraged by the last um, international uh, the 10th International Show at the church that the church museum put on. They do it every four years, I think, I think right? it's three. Is it three? I think okay. it's every three years. But they actually bought right. a piece of mine for hmm. their permanent collection there. And there were, you know, installations. There were, you know, the, there was book art. There was a variety of, yeah. of work there that I think they're trying to to educate people maybe a little bit on, on what you can get out of some of these pieces that aren't so yeah. easily accessible. That show is curated by Laura Hurtado, Laura Hurtado yeah, who great. is a, a curator at the Church Museum of History mm-hmm. and Art. And um, and, and they had a, a jury that uh, she helped put together. And I think a lot of people have had that experience where they feel like she, um, through her own interest, has, uh, has enfranchised yeah. and brought in a diversity that, that um, wasn't always seen before. Mm-hmm. It was, in my experience, um, it was a show that was mixed with folk art, uh, uh, Are you going to use that word? Um, <laughs> and, and I don't know. I mean, that's something that, that I think was actually used in the catalog itself. Right, right. I'm just kidding. It was, and, and it, was, it, was, it was shown as a way to show international works that are done yeah. by members of the church everywhere. And this last one was, it was a mix of international showcase of works mm-hmm. and, of, in, and, and of styles. So it was both diversity in people and of styles that I certainly hadn't seen before. Yeah. And I think that there were there it, there was a place for your work that I hadn't seen necessarily for, not just your work even three for years abstract before. And still, yeah, even three years the ninth, before. So I was also in the ninth one and even the way that it was hung in the museum, all of the quilts and my painting mm-hmm. and, you know, baskets and things like that were were all in one room mm-hmm. and all of the kind of heavy hitters in the Mormon art world were in another room. And all of the, you know, they kind of separated the work that way. And to me, it felt a little bit like, okay, so these are the the folk art mm-hmm. artists. These are the real artists. These are the, 
Oh, you know, so you felt, it felt it felt delineated little, to yeah. you. Yeah, and I and I hope that what I do by taking something that is called a folk art, quote unquote, you know, art like quilts, and doing an oil paint somehow elevates it, somehow makes folk art raise the level of, you know, yeah. figurative oil painting. Yeah. Um, in a way, even though on some level it's. Maybe it's not superficial. I almost said on some level it's a level it's superficial because somebody says, oh, that's a quilt. And if you oh, did it exactly in oil, you would think, oh, now it's a work of art. Exactly, exactly. But, they're, but, but they're, each of them have their own challenges and their own level of craftsmanship in uh-huh. them. It's just that they're, right. they're, just they're different. Fabric and, but this yeah. year, this, at the 10th, um, I guess it was a few years ago, the 10th International Show, it was mixed. I mean, the, yeah. the pieces I felt like were, were yeah. really kind of mixed around and I, I appreciated that. That's interesting. Have you found that people saw your work in that show? You had a new a audience lot. as a result of that? A lot, yeah. How? What was that like? I mean, what, what, how did that show up? Um, they would come up and say, oh, I saw your work at the church show in the, in the museum. And it, and it felt like, wow, you're a real Mormon artist. You know, it was, and they were excited huh. and they wanted And because I titled it, you know, Whole, Woman with an Issue of Blood, they then right. thought about this story, thought about how does this painting connect to that story, and they were able to have this experience maybe with the story that they hadn't had before. I mean, I think they were, I know Caitlin Connolly did a work on that same story. I think there were maybe th- at least three of us hmm. that all painted about that same story, but the styles were vastly different. And the theme was, tell me the stories of Jesus, if I remember yeah, right. Correct. right. And so you picked the woman who'd had an issue of blood, yeah. right? Um, yeah, it's, it, it begs so many questions. One thing that, that comes to my mind yeah, um, maybe isn't a question, it's more of a statement, is that I think we just can't get away from this as humans, that on some level, um, official recognition in one form or another matters, yeah, right? And, sure. and the church, which isn't, its job isn't necessarily to be a patron of the arts. No. Its job, its fourfold mission is... Is, is is different, and the arts certainly have a, but when a you, role within that. But when you that. go to you know temple open houses and there's original art on the walls, but nothing's abstract, you feel like, hmm, does that does that say something to me as an artist? Like, is this hmm. is this the ideal? Like, you should be painting landscapes, or you should be painting, hmm. you know. But I don't. I think, I think there's going to be abstract art in temples. You know, I think. I mean, it's there in the architecture. It's there in, you know, there's patterns all over that yeah. that place. So this leads to to a final question that we're asking everybody. Who, who we bring on the podcast. And um, it, it, I want to I ask it specifically because I'm going to keep it the same for everybody. Okay. And that's, that's that um, 50 years ago, this year, Spencer W. Kimball said that we have the potential for a Mormon Michelangelo, someone who expresses our highest values in art. The temple seems like one of those places mm-hmm. where some of our highest values come out. And you say abstract artist being in the temple right so my question is have we reached that potential as a church do you think we've personally reached that potential of the the mormon michelangelo expressing our highest values in art yet no but i think we're getting closer i think the umbrella for what we may consider as you know the the orthodox the orthodox you know mormon art i think that that umbrella is getting bigger you know people who might say yeah i i I can get something out of that in in a mormon way um I think, I don't know if we're there yet, but I do think we're, we're reaching that place. I'm excited about the, the air, the, the direction that Mormon art is going. Interesting. I'm excited that there's, you know, space for different kinds of art, that people who may not have an art or Konoshenti background with art are mm-hmm. accessing some pieces that aren't as, you know, easy to, to glean from maybe, that they're spending a little more time looking at them. Um, yeah. Well, 
I've really enjoyed this conversation. I could I could go for a long time. <laughs> thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Paige. I'd like to thank Paige Crossland Anderson for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see the works we discussed on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab, along with information on how to see and learn more about Paige Crossland Anderson's own work. For more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening. Thank you.